Thanks for listening to this episode of Thoughts of Suicide. I'm Nate Glover. The idea of the podcast is to work towards reducing the stigma by having conversations. My hope is to provide support to those dealing with suicide in any capacity. If you are in a suicide crisis or experiencing emotional distress, please call 800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741. Welcome to another episode. Thank you so much for listening. I also want to say thank you to everyone who gave me positive feedback for the concept of this podcast. My guest today, Liz, wanted to share her trauma and how she was able to cope and carry on. Here is that conversation. Okay, awesome. Well, my name is Liz Mahoney. I go by Liz, so that's what I put up here on the screen. Um, And basically, I'm now an entrepreneur, but the reason I became an entrepreneur is because I um, was frequently abandoned by my mother. She was an alcoholic. She came here from Norway. And I'll preface this by saying I'm the kind of people that people feel like they can talk to. So I did get to learn all of the horrible sides of my mom's story, and I understand why she felt the need to self-medicate. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying I got the privilege to hear her story and to understand what her motivations were and why she did the things that she did. Having said that, I was six, and I I had a little brother who was a baby, and I would wake up, and I would have to figure out, do I speak the language? Do I have the currency? Where do I think that I am? (laughs) How far away is it to grandma's house? Because my grandma's house is in Norway. So I'm not like, okay, if I'm in Bulgaria, then I need to go north, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, in order for us to survive, if we were in the country, almost everyone I met in the country was hospitable. I could ask them for some cow's milk or some goat's milk. It was fine. If we were in the city, it was a different story. It really depended on where we were. But um, I was a scrappy young lady, so I would knock on someone's door and say, hey, I noticed you have a dog or you have a cat. Um, Can I pick up the dog poop out of your backyard? Or can I clean your cat's litter box um, for 20 rupees or dinaros or whatever, depending on where I was? And or a can of SpaghettiOs if you have them, you know, like I would take anything. And that translated over really well later on in my life. So uh, basically, as we were, as we were growing and things like that, um, I think I shared with you, Nate, like it, it was pretty... It was pretty rough because I I got to know alcoholism in the sense of I can talk to my mom when don't talk to her with no beer because she's grumpy and hungover. When she's like in that two to five beer range, she's really fun and really sweet and really nice. Once she gets past five, take your baby brother and hide because it's going to go downhill and she's going to get grumpy again. So, you know, it's so crazy to me now because I have friends that, you know, they get in the habit of drinking drinking too much and I have the ability to tell them like I'm not mad at you and if you choose to do that you choose to do that but understand that I know this cycle I know that if I talk to you when you're like this you're going to try to guilt trip me you're going to get mad about irrational things and then I'm going to confront you on it tomorrow when you're sober and then you're going to be guilty so then you're going to justify it to drink again and I just don't want to participate in that (laughs) I grew up with that I don't need it anymore anyway long story short my mom's story ended rather tragically she ended up taking her life when I was 17 Um, I had actually just survived um, a kidnapping uh, where a patient that I was working with broke into my apartment and took me 
um, away for three months. And when I came back, my family had thought that I had just become a party animal like my mom. I was emancipated from my parents at 17. I graduated college early, or I'm sorry, high school early and college early. I mean, I was, all my I's were dotted and my T's were crossed. It's like, it's almost like my way of rebelling against her partying was to become like super accomplished or something. I don't know. I didn't think about it that way, but looking back at my life, I'm like, it's kind of funny. So, uh, like I said, she took her life right when I got back. It was because I told her what had happened, um, that she, she said she just couldn't deal. Um, and so I went up to the hospital. Um, I didn't even have time to process how bad it was at that moment. I went to the hospital. I took her hand. Um, she was comatose, partially comatose, kind of in and out. And I said, if you know that this is your daughter, squeeze. And our hands were like this. And she pulled me onto the bed and she was holding me. I, I just remember how uncomfortable I was. Like my back was cramping and I had to like lean over her in that hospital bed. And I couldn't hear anything that she said, but her face was like this. Like her eyes were moving. Her lips were twitching. She was saying something, but that was between her and God or the universe. You know, I didn't get to hear it. And uh, she did that for an hour. And then she let me go. And the nurses came in and they were messing with her oxygen. And uh, because my background is in nursing and I had already already worked at clinics and things, I said, she's brain dead, isn't she? And they said, yeah. So then I had to call my Norwegian grandma. And, uh, you know, it was tough. But again, because of the way that I was raised, I don't have to be motivated to do things. I just know what needs to happen. It doesn't matter if I'm grumpy, if I'm hurting, whatever. Whatever the task is that needs to be accomplished, I will accomplish it. And in this case, my grandma needed to say goodbye to her baby. So my bestimore flies in from Norway, and she's holding my mom. You know, we took her off life support, got her cremated. And uh, I want to bring my little brother into this for a reason right now. Um, we had an open casket funeral, and I kept talking to Sean about what was going on. That's my baby brother's name. And like I said, I raised him, you know, so I was always like, are you understanding what's happening? Do you, let's go to therapy together. Let's talk about this. And I will never forget, we had an open casket funeral and nobody was watching Sean. I'm over here talking to everybody because you have to. And I look over at my little brother and I saw him reach to touch my mom in the casket and he jumped back. It was like he didn't comprehend, you know? Right. So... At that same point in his life, my little brother's life, um, he was in high school and somebody exposed him to cheese. It's heroin mixed with Tylenol PM. Okay. And it, it was like an epidemic as bad as meth 15 years ago. I don't know if it's still around or not. I just knew what was happening kind of in the moment. Um, so he was at my apartment all the time and... Sometimes he would act a little funny, like he would be sitting in the chair and then he would just fall asleep. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, that's not normal. Why are you acting like that? Like, Those aren't words, you know, like what's going on? And, uh, and yeah, he fought that for 15 years. Heroin started off with cheese. He went to culinary school and he was in active addiction. Um, and then, uh, he got so my, by the way, my dad and I put him in rehab as many times as we could get him to go. Anytime, you know, I could tell you about fights where he was like, I'm going to kill myself. And I was like, oh, was that an admission of suicide? 911. Hello, Sean needs to go to Parkland. Like as soon as anything came out of your mouth, he was always mad at me. He would scream at me. He freaking hated me sometimes. And I was like, 
I, I don't care if you hate me, you're alive to hate me. <laughs> you know? yeah, but you may have saved his life just then. Right. You hate, hate me all you want from your hospital room. I don't care. But um, yeah, we, my dad and I got a lot of flack for that, though. People were like, you guys are enablers. You're not. You should kick him out and let him be homeless. You should do all of these different things. And we just had to live by our moral compass. And our moral compass is that he's my baby brother, my dad's only son. We loved him. We would put him in a hundred times more if he was still here. Spoiler alert, unfortunately. So he fought, like I said, for 15 years. He went to culinary school. He always wanted to be an Asian fusion chef. His specialty was yakitori. And at one point, I got him to go to rehab. If you're here in Texas, it was the right step over in Euless, which I believe they make you put $10,000 down, and then you have to pay another $11,000 by the time the program ends. So if you have a family member in active addiction, I highly recommend Parkland over privatized things. Not that I don't want to support them. Like I said, Sean was sober in that program for four years, and that was excellent. It's just that I know not every family can come up with that much um, during their rehabilitative time. So anyway, while he was in that four-year window of sobriety, we went to the movies all the time. He would come over and cook with the kids, and we would just chat. And he said, you know... He's like, Lizzie, I really, Lizzie's my childhood nickname, by the way. I know you were asking me about that because you were like, what do you want to be called? Um, And he would always come around the corner and go, Lizzie, he'd say it like that, you know? So anyway, we would chat and he said, "Um, I would love to have a food truck. And I was like, Sean, you know that I run businesses. By this point, I had left nursing entirely. I was building clinics all across America. I knew businesses up, down, inside, out, and every way you could think of it. I know how to get an EIN, how to get a line of credit, how to get your SBA loan. Everything soup to nuts. So I was like, Sean, this is my jam. I will write you a business plan. So we were going to get a food truck and we were going to wrap it. And the name of it was going to be Some Young Punk, S U M Y U N G P U N K, Asian Fusion. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, it, it suits him as a felon. It suited him well. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, you know, he, he gets, he relapses again. We get him back into rehab, relapses back into rehab. And uh, that goes on for another, what are we at now, six years from then? You know, he, he would have these little windows of sobriety. But um, whew, we're getting to the hard part. <laughs> yeah. I actually saw your post about your brother. It was just a couple of months ago, right? It was January 7th. Okay. So, yeah, so, you know, so he, what, um, what happened? He was in Parkland for two months. It was the first time he had ever put himself in. So you can imagine how Mm. proud we were. And um, he got out. He went to go meet up with some friends of his. And um, he used, he made a mistake, you know. And then the next day, because he had slipped up, he would always say before he goes in, just let me get one more hit before I go in, you know, just Mm -hmm. one more. So he made up some story to my dad about how he owed somebody 300 bucks. My dad scrabbles and finds the money. I didn't know this till after. So Sean goes and gets $300 worth of heroin, and it killed him. So hmm. uh, it was listed as an accidental overdose. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he struggled with suicide. And I, I don't doubt that he would be upset that it ended that way. In other words, he was so upset with himself, it would not surprise me if it was intentional. I can't right. be in his head and know what happened. You but I know that. how much, yeah, how much guilt he had, you know. Yeah. How how have you been doing? I know this was 
just a couple of months ago. So how, uh, how have you been uh, taking care of yourself after this? Well, any tragedy that occurs, and I've no stranger to tragedy, unfortunately, um, I always try to make something out of it that's going to have a positive effect. And when Sean died, all these people went on his Facebook page and said, well, can't say I didn't see it coming. And oh, I was no. like, hey, real quick, <laughs> let me point out to you that he fought his addiction for 15 years. That's a long time. That is a long time. And that's something to be proud of. So after about a week or two, um, and I didn't get his ashes back for uh, 18 days because of COVID and we couldn't hold a funeral. Supposedly, the world's supposed to open back up in June. I don't know if that's actually what's going to happen, but I plan in June, I uh, about a week after Sean died, I called up a, a dear friend of mine. His name is J. Dan Gum, and he owns Forgiven Felons, which is a registered 501c3 nonprofit. And his idea, because everybody said, don't put felon in the title or no one will work with you. And he was like, forgiven felons. We have to find a way to get them back in the system. Sean couldn't work after he got his felony conviction as a chef anymore, obviously, because they were like, oh, you're a felon, you're out. Didn't even ask to taste his food, you know what I mean? Like, they were just like, sorry, you don't qualify to be in our organization. And uh, I always wondered why that was. So, long story short, I called Jay, you know, I was still grieving, and I was like, hey, Jay, I want to do the food truck for Sean. And I want to staff it with felons that don't have anywhere else to go. And I know, because I've seen the business plans on them, that'll pull about $250,000 in a year for your organization. So I'm doing all this market research and I'm putting all this stuff together. By the way, Jay was like, he said, that's a hell yeah. And that was so nice to hear as somebody who was grieving because I was just like, I didn't know what his response was going to be. He goes, hell yeah, let's do it. I was like, awesome. So I found, I found the truck. I found an investor. The investor pulled out where we are right now. Um, I have just started my 27th company. So we're moving into our offices. We have a $10 million fund uh, amount of, uh, what do you call it, SBA loan that's about to hit. But all these things are in flux. So I was talking to my team and they know me really well because they know we were supposed to be moving when I found Sean and obviously everything got put on hold. But um, I, I told the team, I was like, yeah, the investor for his truck pulled out. And they were like, well, if we have to take it out of our stuff and call it our side venture and donate it to the 501, we're going to do that. And I was like, I love you guys. <laughs> that's so great. So that's where we're at. I, I don't know if anybody associated with your podcast will hear that and be like, oh, by the way, I'm an angel investor. But if you want to be a part of the project, I do have to say, though, there are so many people who tell me I'm a saint for doing that. I'm not doing it because I'm trying to acquire some wings. I'm doing it because it's the biggest middle finger I can give to people who said that felons were useless to me and my dad, who said that Sean wasn't worth the rehab money of us putting him back in. If you draw breath, you're worth something. You know what I mean? You can learn from anybody, even if it's how to steal stuff, which isn't something I condone at all. But I'm saying they have value. And I just I just want the world to, to see it that way. And, and maybe that would have an effect on the suicide rate. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a very noble cause because anyone knows that if you have a stack of resumes, the best way to narrow that down is to toss out all the ones that have a felony charge. So I'll put your information in the show notes, and that way if anyone is interested in investing, they can reach out to you. The next thing I want to talk about, if you can, is your kidnapping before your mom passed away. To be honest with you, I've, I've had to do so many talks for battered women and victims of kidnapping in various national organizations that that's easier for me to talk about than my mom or my brother. 
<laughs> as crazy and awful as that is. But um, yeah, basically, I worked at Baylor Scott and White. Um, I went to high school here in Texas that allows you if you know what your vocation is, or you have a good idea. For me, obviously, it was medicine at the time. Um, they kind of intern you with organizations. So if you were into dentistry, they would kind of intern you into a dental office, automotive, et cetera, et cetera. So I got to work at Baylor Scott and White when I was 15. And um, I worked for multiple doctors. The ICU was my baby, but um, I, I float. They call you a floater. I know that's so derogatory, but they mean like you can float over to phlebotomy, float to the ER, da, da, da. Um, anyway, so, uh, one day one of the doctors pulled me aside and he was like, don't go on the fifth floor. And the fifth floor is psych patients primarily if they're kind of in holding because they came to the hospital for an injury before they go to Green Oaks or wherever it is that they need to go. So, um, I was like, okay, like, I don't think I spend a lot of time up there. That's weird. And, uh, I did not know this at the time. I found this out way after, but, um, Apparently there was a patient that had caught sight of me in a hallway and the reason the doctor warned me not to go near that floor was because he had started keeping notebooks and notebooks. I always say spiral notebooks. That's incorrect. They obviously don't let psychiatric patients have spiral notebooks because of the suicide issue. Um, it's those composition notebooks with the tape, whatever that's called. He had several of those and in them he called me heaven and he called me Eden and he wrote about how... Um, I was his angel on earth and his heaven on earth. And to get close to me, he wanted to cut me from my belly button to my chin and have sex with my intestines. I really wish the doctor had told me that because instead of saying, don't go near the fifth floor, I would have been like, maybe wow. just don't go to work for a while, you know? Exactly. Um, but I didn't know that at the time. So long story short, um, he was able to get out. Um, he was frequently homeless. He followed me figured out where I lived and he left, I actually left this detail out, Nate, when I was typing this up for you, but he left a bottle of, uh, and Palm, the company Palm, please don't be mad at me for this. It's just a detail I remember now, but it's Palm Wonderful, uh, pomegranate green likey tea, which is a kind of tea that I really like. So in hindsight, he probably saw me purchase it at the grocery store or something. But anyway, it was on my doorstep. I picked it up and I was like, sweet. One of my friends dropped off some tea for me and I went inside and I found out later that to that kind of uh, mind that's lost touch with reality, by accepting the tea, I was accepting him. So that was like, like, you know how, um, and this is what got me into true crime. So it's so funny that you were like, hey, do you have a true crime podcast? And I was like, huh, somebody has my same name and is doing that apparently. But I am obsessed with that psychology because I want to know, like, my brother and I were raised in the same environment. Why did he struggle with addiction? And I don't. Why right. is it that this, you know, these psychopaths think the way that they think. So, uh, yeah, so I brought the tea inside and later on that night, he, um, I lived in a really ghetto part of town because again, I was 17 and I worked three jobs. My rent was like $450. It was not, <laughs> it was not top of the line. Um, so yeah, he was able to kick in my door and, uh, of course I freaked out. I didn't know what was going on. Um, he started, you know, beating up on me. I remember us, I had a couch that was kind of in this open area. Like you could walk into this one room, kind of walk around this couch. I remember he had his hand on my throat and I had my hand on his throat. And I remember us falling over the back of the couch. At some point he put my head through the plaster, um, which is how the only person who believed me when I came back from it was my apartment manager. His name was Jose. And he believed me because there was a giant hole in the wall from my head and there was bloody handprints on the bathroom door. 
And the cops were like, well, that could be paint. That could be all these other things, you know? And I'm just like, now I'm smart. Now I would be like, I need your badge numbers. I need to talk to your lead investigators. But I was a child. I was 17 years old. I didn't, I didn't know that process. So anyway, he ultimately, I end up um, passing out and he had a straight razor and he was going to carry out the plan that I shared with you guys. And I gave him something more interesting to do. And uh, I got zip tied. He put me in the back of a trunk. It was a 300, a Mercedes 300D. So those real old cars. And there were ether bottles everywhere because he had to click the spark plugs. It had spark plugs. So he had to click them twice to warm them up. And then he had to spray the ether in there. So even when he wasn't trying to chloroform me, he was because it was everywhere. Um, and yeah, so he... Uh, <sighs> we were in so many state parks, you know, I really couldn't keep track of where we were, but I do know he went to, and I always get this mixed up. I specifically texted it to you so I could remember which state it was. I think it's Arkansas. It's no, it was Alabama. I knew it was an A state because, um, if you have permission, which he faked, a, a form on a piece of paper, you can get married at 17. Um, and so I was forced into marriage and, in order to survive, I pretended like I had Stockholm syndrome and I had fallen in love with him, which is sadly more common in abusive relationships than you want to believe. So, um, he, his, uh, breaks from reality were getting worse and worse. And, um, ultimately we were in a park one day and he was telling me that like the ants crawling on the ground were sending him a message that God was angry with him and that he could hear the voice of God and that he was God and he was controlling the wind in the trees. So he would be outside like doing this, you know, like, I mean, it was, yeah. So he took off and I, w I just remember I was waiting because I was like, he might come right back. Sometimes he would go and he would come right back just to see if I was there. So I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. Finally, like an hour has passed and I'm like, I'm going to go for it. So I had on my shoes and some dirty clothes and I was all beat up and bloody. When he had put me in the trunk of the car, I'd screamed so loud. I burst all the capillaries in my eyes. So I had like these red demon eyes. He had punched me so hard, this retina detached. So I have to wear glasses. Um, and I had cuts all over me because he was always threatening me with the whole intestines thing. So I, I ran and I will never forget that run because I can't describe that level of fear. It was like every, every shadow, could have been an issue. Every car, every person, somebody could have gotten back and told him what was going on. I just had no idea. And so I just remember being behind trees sometimes and like, I was like this close to a mental breakdown, you know, I was just like, <laughs> you know, and I was like, okay, you have to get somewhere. You have to get somewhere, find somebody with a vehicle. And uh, I made it to this trucker station because I knew you could take showers there. And uh, unfortunately, my pride was too high to beg for money. So I was just like, okay, I know that they let you have showers here. So I went up to the guy behind the counter. I was like, I know that this is hard to believe, but I would really love a shower. This is what happened. This is why I look like this. And he let me take a shower. So that was nice. My clothes were still stinky, but at least I was clean for the first time in a while. And there was this lady trucker. If you can imagine gray perm, uh, they, what do they call that? A whiskey voice when they have a real hoarse voice, you know? And she goes... Darling, I just heard what you were saying, and I would love to give you a ride to where you need to go. Oh, wow. And uh, she was so nice. So I was just like, oh, my God, like, you're, I'm sure you're going to get in trouble with work because, you know, she goes, 
it's a big old sleeper truck. We have a bed in the back. You just take care of yourself. And I was like, God. So I wasn't sitting next to her because I was still scared. Like, you know, you hang around with a paranoid person that long and you're like, maybe they know him or they're going to drop me off there. Right. Um, so yeah, I was in the back and I was on the bed and I was just like, Ugh. but she drove me all the way back to Texas, right to my apartment. Wow. And uh, yeah, so that's when first thing I did was call the police and I said, uh, Jose let me into my apartment and he was super sweet. He was like, I've never seen a kid because I'd had that apartment at that point for one year. And then I ended up ultimately having that apartment for two years. And he said he had never seen a little kid bust their butt so hard to pay rent and to have their own space. So he kept it for me. Like he didn't re get rid of my stuff or anything, which is like, at the time I was just kind of like, okay. How long had you been gone? Three months. Oh, wow. Okay. So that's remarkable. He should have totally sold out my stuff. And I don't know, I have to chalk it up to a God thing or a universe thing. I don't want to offend anybody listening, but I mean, <laughs> he has a business to run. So it, that was wild. Um, but yeah, so I had all my stuff. First thing I did was call the cops. Two officers came over and I said, this is what happened. And I remember one of the cops, he was the shorter one. He goes, you said you married this guy? And I was like, I'm 17 years old. I did what he said. And he goes, well, it sounds to me like you made your bed, now lie in it. And he left. Oh, good. Good Lord. <laughs> so now, like at the time, I was just like, okay, adult, if that's, if that's what you say. <laughs> I'm angry for myself at that age. I think that that's what led me into so much advocacy because, I mean, my friends call me and they're like, hey, this happened in business. And I'm like, don't let them do that to you. You need to call this person. And that. But it's because of things like that, because I didn't know. And I just I let it happen. And right after that is when I called my mom. Or no, that's not true. I called my dad and he was like, your grandparents think that you ran off and you're partying like your mom because my mom had a tendency to disappear and party all the time. So they've cut you out of the well and they don't want to talk to you anymore. And I was like, okay, that's not what happened. And my dad was like, well, maybe you could show him the police report. I was like, funny story. I can't. After I got off the phone with my dad, that's when I called my mom. And she was drunk off her tush. And I was like, this is what happened. And I knew what had happened to her. She had a lot of, as I've hinted at before, really, really bad things happen to her. So she goes, take a pen and write this down. And I'm like, oh, an adult giving me advice. She goes, I found this recipe the other day. It's for creamy salmon basil or creamy basil salmon. And I was like, whatever, mom. Okay, go ahead. If this is what needs to happen right now. So I wrote it down. I had it pinned it up on the fridge so she would know if she ever came by that I actually did write it down because that was a whole other thing. And, uh, you know, she started off by saying it's not your fault. And I was like, I know, I know. And then she goes, well, I guess it was kind of your fault. It's kind of our fault because it's in my blood. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, I've always had this bad luck. I've had all these bad things happen to me, you know, just kind of gibberish. And I was just like, you know, mom, it's okay. You don't worry about it. Um, I love you. And that was the last time I ever talked to her. Hmm. Wow. That, that's a lot. That's a, yeah. that's a lot. Oh, what did the, the kidnapper did? What did he try to contact you again after that? Or he, he still does. He's still alive. Oh, um, wow. And, uh, you know, he never went to jail or prison or anything like that. He, um, just goes in and out of psychiatric facilities so what I do the reason I know my local police department now is I call and I'm like 
write this down on February 28th at 10.05 p.m. He sent me a Facebook message. Here's what it says. I just need you guys to keep a record of it so that if something happens or I go missing, you have a, a years-long report of me calling you. Because they, there are so many cases where... Uh, I can't even think of one where I w he, he was close to where I was and they wouldn't give me a restraining order because he wasn't mentally fit to be in court. And they call it something different now. I think they call it a peace bond or there's a different name for it. I can't remember what the judge said. But um, yeah, he. Uh, I, I just remember calling the police and I was like, what are you going to do? And it was a lady and she goes, well, if he's not doing anything to you, there's nothing we can do. And I was like, oh my gosh, this system is so broken. It's so crazy. And I'm sorry. I laugh when I get stressed out. I hope that that doesn't offend anybody. I'm sure it no, comes off as a little strange. No. Yeah. And don't worry about offending anyone. <laughs> well, I, I hope at the beginning of the episode that we can say trigger warning because someone who's yeah. experienced trauma might lash out if they see something like this. And For sure. Part of, part of what made me such a good nurse is because I would have patients that would flip out and I would be like, okay, clearly you're not flipping out because somebody said something this way there's something else going on what's going on you know hopefully that doesn't happen here but if somebody is listening and they're triggered by this i just want you to know i got out of it it was okay and now i advocate for other people to get out of it so you know just whatever's going on reach out to nate and tell him what's going on and nate can reach out to me and i will happily hook you up with any resource i have in my yeah portfolio yeah and any resources you have uh let me know i can put them in the show notes for anyone that's interested awesome what about you? Did you seek treatment for PTSD? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm a huge advocate for it. And, you know, I'm a highly intelligent person. So the therapist would even be like, I don't know if I can keep up with you. And I'm like, I don't care whatever tools you have. I cannot keep having these nightmares. I can't keep, you know, going to try to go on dates with somebody and like having to write down this is the address that you're at. This is what happened to you. I mean, with complex PTSD, I have had nightmares so vivid that I have woken up and looked at my partner and been like, is my mom dead or my dad? Like, and I genuinely cannot remember because I had this dream that they buried my dad under this construction building. And I woke up and I was like, which parent am I missing? Like, oh my God, it's, I don't wish it on anybody, but if you have it, please go to therapy. Clearly I'm able to talk about it and I'm able to function at a high level no matter what life throws at me, because I know that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to take care of me. Everything will end up okay. But yeah, if you're, if you have a mental obstacle that you think that going to therapy and when I say therapy, psychological therapy, I don't necessarily advocate for psychiatric because they use a lot of chemicals and that's just not my jam. I'm not saying don't do it. If you need it, do it. I'm just saying I personally am referring to therapy and more on the psychology side of things because that's what worked for me. Yeah, different things work for different people. Some people, some people need both, uh, for sure. Guy that kidnapped me is a great example. If he would just stay on his meds, maybe he could. And I think so many people they're for, they don't want to. Well, I I don't like using the word get help uh, because then that right. makes makes that makes it sound like there's something wrong with them. And I think that's the feeling they have. If I go to see someone about what I'm feeling, I'm broken or there's something wrong with me, and I. I don't really, I wish I knew the best way to change that mindset. What, right. what would you say to someone who just does not, does not want to see someone because it'll make them feel like there's something wrong with them? 
change the verbiage in your head. We talk about this in business all the time. Instead of saying I'm busy, say I'm maximized and I can't accommodate you right now, but I will later because you'll feel better. Instead of saying I need to get help, that automatically puts you in victim mode. And if you're an alpha male, you're going to be like, I don't need help. And if you're anywhere on the spectrum of help not being acceptable the way that you grew up, it's just the verbiage. Instead of saying I need to get help, how about you say I'm not bulletproof right now and I need to be bulletproof to accomplish the things I need to accomplish. So I'm going to go talk to somebody who knows how to do that. Did you ever have thoughts of killing yourself as a result of your trauma? Absolutely. So um, I think the most recent, and I hate to say it, but it's 100% true. The most recent example is um, when I found out that I was pregnant with my fourth child. So I've already had three And I kind of skipped over this part in my story originally. But when I had my first daughter, my partner did not want me to keep her. And a part of what motivated me to go into business is that I was like, she is going to have the most amazing life. She is never going to experience the things that I've experienced. So there's a whole backstory there. But just know, put it in the, that that was a trigger for me. So fast forward to my fourth child. Four children is a lot of children. My partner did not want to have that baby. And, uh... It just put me back in that really dark place of coming out of kidnapping. Like mentally, it was like all the years in between didn't happen. It was just like right back there. And so I struggled a lot with depression while I was pregnant. And then the guilty thought is like, oh my God, if all these sad chemicals are inside me, is it going to affect my baby? Like, how am I going to handle all this stuff? Because obviously I chose to have him. And a side note, it's not a political thing. It's not an anti-abortion thing. It's just a me thing. I just, I wanted my babies. Yeah. So, um, I, I would reach out and be like, Hey, are you sure you don't want to do this? And he, he was sure. So it was just, I don't know. It it was such a struggle for me, but I go on and I have my son and he was perfectly healthy and wonderful. This is in September of 2019, just to give you an idea of how recent this is. But while I was at the hospital, I told the staff, I was like, I'm feeling a lot of pain. And they were like, well, we can't give you more pain meds. And I was like, that's not what I'm asking for. I'm telling you that there's a problem. Well, every C-section is different because I had to have four C-sections. I said, I, I understand that. Um, but I, this is my fourth. <laughs> Does it Has any of your staff had four? If I tell you something's wrong, can you help me? <laughs> and uh, long story short, they were like, well, let's put some ice on it. And I was like, okay, ice didn't work. Well, let's put some heat on it. And I'm like, something's wrong. So they send me home and it turned out that I had had an infection. Um, But every time I called my doctor and I was like, hey, I've got like chills, but I just had a fever (laughs) because I didn't know what was going on. I was whacked out of my mind and not sleeping because I just had this baby, you know, they eat every hour. Um, I ripped my stitches open twice. And finally, one of my girlfriends came over. I wish I I could pull up the picture to show you guys. I look like living death, but I didn't know it. And um, my girlfriend comes over and she goes, we're going to the ER right now. (laughs) So she arranged for the kids stuff, drives me over to the ER. um, And uh, yeah, they were like, you you have an infection. So I ended up, they had to cut me open again. So this is now the fourth time, original C-section, stitches ripped twice. Now they have to do a wound vac. They can't give you any kind of pain stuff while they're doing it. They have to pack you full of gauze. Just imagine how much fun that was. Um... But I had been having, I did not know this, but sometimes the shaking wasn't just the infection. I'd been having petit mal seizures and uh, they get the C-section thing all cleared up, send me home. And in December, 
I ended up having a grand mal seizure just from the trauma of all of that. So my daughter was holding the baby or actually I handed her the baby. I said, Hey, I'm going to go put on my pajamas. Can you hold him for a second? She's, she's 12. She's amazing. She's like, of course, mom, no problem. So I go back to the bedroom. The next thing I hear, well, the next thing I know, my head was over a sink, but what was told to me was that my daughter found me on the bed covered in blood and vomit. My nose had bled. Um, I had thrown up at some point. Um, it was just, it was bad. And she apparently screamed bloody murder. And uh, her dad comes running and he's like, oh my God. So he had put my head over the sink because he was trying to rinse everything out and figure out like, did I cut myself? Did I fall? But it, it had been a nosebleed. So I went to the doctor shortly after that and I was like, hey, what's going on? And he was like, oh, well, you know, we did the MRIs and all this stuff. It looks like you have a seizure, seizure disorder. And uh, I was like, well, that's new. And at first I was like, it didn't really hit me. But then slowly it was like, nobody wants you. Nobody, even though you can bring life into this world and they're beautiful, wonderful, amazing human beings. And notice I was not being proactive to Nate's point. I was just sitting there in my sadness and letting myself make up this story in my head of how things were, which is totally untrue. But I, I didn't realize it at the time. So I, uh, I call, uh, I don't know if you know MetroCare, but they do mental health. So I called MetroCare and I was like, I've never done this before, but I'm going down a really dark path and I need whatever help you can give me. And so, um, of course they put me on Prozac. I was on prednisone for, um, the seizures. And, uh, then I started talking to another, a new therapist. I don't know if any of you guys have ever taken prednisone but it makes you blow up. I gained 70 pounds in like a couple of weeks. It was in, I, so I walked out of the hospital weighing the same as when I walked in. And now here I was, and I was like the Michelin man. So that messes with you because you touch your arm and you're like, my arm is like 10 times bigger than it's supposed to be. My face, this doesn't even look like my face. Right. You know, everything in this weird world, it was like those fun house mirrors, you know, everything was wrong. And that's when I was like really struggling with suicide. Like I said, I was right back to when I was in that unresourceful place for about a year after my kidnapping, before I got proactive and got my feet back under me, I was right back there. I was like, there's no reason for me to be alive. I'm a burden on my family. And uh, thankfully, you know, I would talk to friends and I started, I'm a knitter. I love to knit. I'm working on a pair of socks for my daughter right now. And I started an Instagram page and I called it safety plan knitting. And if you don't know what a safety plan is, when you're suicidal and you read, reach out to a therapist, your therapist creates a safety plan for you. You have to put it in front of your face. And anytime you start having those thoughts, it says, listen to your favorite podcast, knit some socks. As silly as that sounds, it helps so much because you get so in your head and then it's like, oh yeah, there's things that I could be doing. So that's where safety plan comes from. And that community just reached out and I was like, I'm in this awful place, you guys, you know, just FYI, I'm going to do my best, but, um, here's these socks. I'm very sad. <laughs> and they just rallied around me, you know, and they would check on me and, uh, just make, they would be like, Hey, how's your project? And how's your head? <laughs> you know, like it, it was just wonderful. So I can't say, uh, enough, go to therapy, get a safety plan, and draw close to your community. Even if you're worried that you're a mess, just show up. You don't have to do anything other than show up. 
Yeah, the safety plan is something I had not heard of until the other day. I was reading about it, and I'm like, wow, that that makes sense. It's a way just to kind of overcome that feeling of hopelessness at that moment, right? Just It's, it's a distraction almost, right? A hundred percent. One of the stats that I stumbled across said they did a study of the survivors that had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I think it was like 174 people. I could be incredibly wrong. But they did a study. You can Google it. It was the University of San Francisco. And they said that every single survivor realized that their problems were solvable on the way down. And I would say that to myself all the time. Your problems are solvable. And then the other thing I say to myself is I will not be afraid. Because I would be afraid to get out of bed. I will not be afraid. And then as you're recovering from that and getting in a better mindset, then everything happens with your brother. Yeah. Well, actually, no, I would say I was past all that. Really, it was it was more um, partner issues and then having a newborn that had colic. And then he, he's just, I don't know how your sons are, but as, as a little baby, my son is very clingy. And it grates on you sometimes. You're just, okay, buddy, hold on. I'm making your bottle. And he's grabbing onto you. And he's just like, whoa. And you're like, oh, my God. I love you so much, but you're making me nuts. So it was more that while I was dealing with that. And and then I was actually, I was in the best place I've been in years. I had just started, my partner and I had been, a business partner, had been working on a business concept for a year. So we had been iterating marketing concepts to see what would be sticky in the marketplace. In December of last year, so 2020, that would be a year after my grand mal seizure, I uh, I sent out an email and I ran a Facebook ad for a, a special type of SEO that I do, and I got 13,000 replies, and it completely killed my Gmail. So I was like, I called my business partner. I'm like, Matt, we found the one. <laughs> like, this is going to work. So we filed for our EIN. We got our bank account up and going. We were getting ready to move into our offices. We had our first 10 clients on board, and like I said, we had 13,000 leads to follow up with, so we looked really good. And that's when I found him dead. If someone is listening that has gone through trauma and hard life experiences and they just don't see how they can go on anymore, what would you say? Right. Well, if anybody's listening and nothing has resonated so far, if you heard my story and you were just like, well, you're some kind of freak of nature, superhuman, which I'm not, but I, I hear that attributed to me all the time. So whatever. If, if that went in one ear and out the other, if, hey, please get help went in one ear and out the other, if, hey, we love you and we think that you're valuable went in one ear and out the other, I want you to think about when you were little and something bad happened and someone wasn't there for you. If you can't stay alive for us, can you please be the person that you needed when you were little? Can you figure out what unique problem it is that you solve? Because we do need you. The world needs you. So please, stay with us. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Liz's story. Please subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. And follow us on social media. You can even help out further by checking out the Patreon link below for as little as $1 an episode. It's less than $5 a month. I'll try to provide some extra bonus content for you. See you next time.